Welcome to DoD Secure, and I'm your host, Jeff Bennett. With the latest in information that you need to navigate the world of clear defense contracting, we'll cover a few articles as well as introduce you to our proud sponsors who provide goods and services that assist other clear defense contractors with their day-to-day activities, just making their lives so much easier. So stay tuned to information as well as our sponsors' advertisements that might just help you. All right, so in today's episode, we're going to talk about a few things. One is why the U.S. government assigns classification levels and what the responsibilities of the defense contractor are. Other one is four powerful ways that facility security officers can employ to create a security conscious enterprise and three ways facility security officers create an effective security culture. And finally, we might get into some certification information for those of you who may be interested. All right, so concerning the government classification levels, why does the government assign classification levels and how is a clear defense contractor supposed to respond? Well, the U.S. government has designed policies that ensures that sensitive material is protected you know, at the level designated to prevent unauthorized disclosure. Unauthorized disclosure, for those of you not in the know, simply means that somebody without the proper clearance level or appropriate clearance level um, should not be accessing classified information. But that's only part of it. Uh, what others fail to recognize is the aspect of need to know. Not only do you need the clearance, but you also have a requirement to understand what that classified information is. That usually That's usually related to a contract or a project. So if you are a holder of information that is sensitive, you need to make sure also that that other person has a need to know that information. Just because they work in the same company or have the same clearance level does not justify their having access. Unauthorized um, disclosure could also mean that the information is lost or vulnerable out out somewhere where somebody can access it that's not supposed to access it. So the government has, um, in, in these cases, put together guidance on how to handle information marked at a certain classification level. Now, the original classifier or the original classification authority, OCA, um, they're the ones that get together to determine the classification levels of information. And they have to be able to explain the damage to national security should this information be um, disclosed in an unauthorized manner. And these levels coincide with um, damage to national security. So you have the confidential, secret, and top secret levels. And once they are identified, those who hold that classified information are required to safeguard it in the appropriate way. Top secret has more restrictions than secret, and secret has more restrictions than confidential. And so each must be protected according to their classification markings. For example, an unauthorized disclosure of confidential information could cause damage. Secret could be serious damage. 
top secret could cause exceptionally grave damage. The OCA, once they determine these classification levels, provide this guidance through uh, a DD Form 254, a security classification guide, and classification markings, or combination of all of the above. So that's why it's important if somebody's getting a contract with the government, they have the appropriate tools that they need to determine these classification levels and how to protect them. As we spoke before, the DD Form 254 gives explicit instructions on how the information should um, be protected, where the work is to take place, and any additional instructions. One thing is important to understand. Defense contractors do not assign classification levels. That is a government-sponsored activity. What the defense contractor does is something called derivative classification. And that means that they are compiling or summarizing or building a product based on classified information they received on their contract. If you want any other explanation of this, you can check our other podcasts that talk about classification levels, how to store classified information, or you can get our book, How to Get U.S. Government Contracts and Classified Work. Um, You can also get copies of the National Industrial Security Program Operating Manual. All are available on my website at redbikepublishing.com, and you can see links to those in the show notes. At MathCraft, we believe security risks and lack of compliance are threats to a business and its people. We strive to provide our clients with the tools they need to stay compliant and prepare for the next generation of threats. Through comprehensive training, support, and customer resources, we transform our clients into security professionals with the know-how to defend their organizations and maintain comprehensive security programs. For more information or ways we can help, visit mathcraft.com or call 703-729-9022. At MathCraft, we support the mission of FSOs, CSOs, and other security professionals who stand at the front line of our nation's battle against foreign and domestic threats. With software designed to the latest federal security standards, we help them strategize speed up self-auditing processes, create new workflows, generate reports, and receive technical information at a moment's notice. And again, if you're interested in some of the MathCraft products and services, check our show notes for a link to MathCraft. So let's get back to it. We can discuss four powerful ways that facility security officers can employ to create a security-conscious enterprise. So what is key? The first is influence at all levels. Now, a key trait that an FSO or security manager, or any manager really, should demonstrate is the ability to work with organizational structures or personnel within differing organizational structures to gain executive, manager, and workforce cooperation. There's a term we've heard before called stovepiping, where each person works on their special set of skills, and you go from place to place to place to get access to those skills. But when you have a stovepipe situation, 
the work isn't integrated. And to be able to integrate security policy into the organizational structure, the FSO should have influence at all levels of that corporate structure. An FSO can train and write policy, but without the enterprise's full cooperation, they'll find it difficult to enforce. And you've probably all been there where um, each stovepiped department has its own independent policy, but nothing weaves them together into a corporate um, corporate level policy. So, for example, an FSO is responsible for um, reacting to security violations, and some of that reaction might mean to do some level of discipline execute some level of discipline on an employee who committed several security infractions. Well, if an FSO puts out a policy of what that discipline might look like and they do not have the support of human resources or the senior vice president, for example, well, then it's just an empty threat. So in this example... HR and corporate policy would also support the FSO's policy and training to provide a better and more efficient security program. Now, point number two, integrate security at all levels. This kind of goes hand in hand with point one, being um, having influence at all levels. But now let's integrate this security aspect within the entire organization. A well-integrated security plan ensures that all business units within an enterprise notify the FSO of any change in disposition of cleared employees, classified contracts, or the ability of facilities to um, prevent unauthorized security, uh, unauthorized disclosure of sensitive information. This integrated system will trigger the contracts, departments, program managers, business development, and other business units to coordinate with and keep that FSO informed of expired, current, and future contract opportunities and responsibilities. That way, the FSO can jump in ahead of any changes and lead the charge to protect sensitive information and not be reactive this leader leading the charge can also assist with being fiscally responsible and budgeting security requirements. Which is the next point, be fiscally responsible. An important task that an FSO faces is the successful implementation of that security program while supporting the company's primary mission of pleasing the customer, making money, successfully performing on classified contracts, and etc. Security efforts should be risk-based and focused while meeting requirements of the National Industrial Security Program Operating Manual, or the NISPOM. An FSO with business competency and know-how is highly desired. For small contractors, this could mean selecting the most competent employee or leader for that appointed duty. For large organizations, a thorough job description and performance requirements should capture the best candidate who would most likely lead a team of other security professionals. Point four, be flexible but knowledgeable. 
The constantly evolving world situation creates an ever-changing security environment. New technology, new devices uh, may challenge current risk assessments and current countermeasures. Some changes may result in new government policies and guidance. These guidance and policy implementations may provide an environment through which the FSO and security staff must be able to negotiate flexibility and knowledge, um, flexibility of the changing requirements and knowledge of those requirements ahead of time. For the FSO, the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency, DCSA, communicates changes to that NISPOM. And when changes are identified, the FSO should take advantage of an integrated security plan to notify the affected programs and employees to reach a feasible solution. So those are four points that that FSOs can use to integrate their security policy throughout the organization. Um, If you need any assistance with FSO or security training, um, contact me. I'm at editor at redbikepublishing.com or you can visit um, my website, jeffreywbennett.com Now I'd like to tell you about our other sponsors sponsored Mission Driven Research They're there to glorify God by empowering employees to fill their mission Their vision statement is that every employee finding fulfillment and joy by actively engaging in the mission Their core values are to go the extra mile for their customers grow our employees personally and professionally and give generously to our community in their website they describe themselves as a growing company providing technical services to the u.s federal government if you'd like to know more about mission-driven research find them at missiondrivenresearch.com and also in our show notes i'll include a link to their website and how to contact them Now let's talk about three ways FSOs create an effective security culture. So now we're taking all of those requirements, all the ways that the FSO should integrate with corporate policies, and now let's talk about creating an effective security culture. Cleared employees should be aware of recruiting techniques, suspicious contact engagements, and other methods that adversaries may use to acquire sensitive information in their possession or in their heads, what they have knowledge of. There are a few methods that, you, that FSOs can use to bring awareness to their teams, making awareness part of the culture and injecting it into the enterprise. For example, while the FSO leads a team of security professionals, or in some cases with smaller companies, is the team of security professionals, they should um, create the type of training that is tailored towards every team working on a different classified contract. Injecting this knowledge into the security program also enhances security postures by bringing to light the types and frequency of suspicious contacts. So point number one, the purposeful execution of foreign travel pre-briefings. Now, we know that um, in the National Industrial Security Program Operating Manual, there's emphasis on reporting um, foreign travel. Now, this is a big task because now the facility security officers 
um, look ahead and try to get their cleared employees to report any potential overseas travel. And this could include those overseas travel occasions during cruises. The FSO needs to know this information because now the clear defense contractor is required to report um, foreign travel to the DCSA. Now, giving this briefing helps the foreign travel be aware of any recruiting potential. A threat and or defensive briefing should be provided to each cleared employee. Uh, NISPOM requires this training. And briefings should be documented with signatures, dates, and contents of the, brief, of the briefings and presented to the DCSA upon request when they do their annual reviews or whenever those reviews are occurring. Point two is conduct deep briefings once the employees return from their travel. This is a tool to follow up with the threat or defensive security training or briefing that was presented prior to their travel. Now you can close the loop and provide any reports or just close the loop and demonstrate that closure to the DCSA during their audit. Three, implementation of a quality assurance effort to check and verify suspicious contact reports their training, the reported directions, and employee knowledge. For example, setting up an appropriate simulated exercise to validate employee knowledge or their situational awareness of the reporting, suspicious contact reporting process. This can be done in a couple of different ways. One is providing trigger points at various business units. For example, a cleared employee traveling overseas may be required by policy to contact human resources, the company insurance company, travel branch or travel arrangers, export compliance officer, and many others. So the FSO can build in and demonstrate a trigger point where they are notified to provide the briefings or other performance actions. Uh, the other sub-point is built-in or build-in simulation exercises during annual security refresher training. Demonstrate and document this training, discussion, role-playing, and other activities that teach and test the cleared employee knowledge. Well, as I mentioned before, tips can be found in my book, How to Get U.S. Government Contracts and Classified Work. Also, if you visit Red Bike Publishing, we do have these NISPOM required trainings that you can download. We have security awareness training, annual refresher training, derivative classifier training, um, insider threat briefings, and more. You can just download and present to your uh, cleared employees and receive credit for that. I'd like to talk to you now about one of my friends and sponsor, Ron Sixtus, that's S-Y-K-S-T-U-S. And he says, for example, you might be filling out your SF-86 or application for security clearance, and you suddenly realize that there are red flags. Ron says you need good advice before submitting that SF-86. So get with Ron involved and involve him as soon as possible in your process. It's always best to have him review your problem, questions, and answers before you submit it. You can call Ron at 
713 or 0221. You can email him at rsixtus, S Y K S T U S, at bond and boats, B O N D, the letter N, B O T E S dot com, or visit securityclearancedefenselawyer.com. And also, we're going to have his information in our show notes as well. All right, this next discussion is about a security certification called the Industrial Security Professional and the Industrial Security Oversight Certification. Two different certifications. One is by a professional organization called NCMS, and the other is by the Department of Defense. And so we have a master exam prep for studying for these certifications, and we have two them in two formats. One is for the um, older version of NISPOM, and one is for the upcoming version of the NISPOM. Currently, both certifications are testing out of the older version of NISPOM. But if you want to get ahead and study for when the test changes over to the 32 CFR Part 117, um, these books are available. Now, there's a lot of debate about professional certification. Currently, the drive and motivation for facility security officers and their staff to become ISP certified is still self-motivating and not yet a requirement. So there are not many outright requirements for security professionals to devote time, money, and other valuable resources necessary to getting that certification. The Department of Defense and professional organizations like ASIS and NCMS are performing the monumental task of creating credible and you know viable certification programs to demonstrate a professional's expertise. I do recommend that professionals seek out and qualify for the appropriate ones. There are a few job announcements that you might see out there and job postings with defense contractors that actually require certification. But slowly, the DOD agencies are tying certifications to job positions as well. Now, the DOD has created a certification for their employees called um, the Security Professional and Education Development Program, or SPED, and it's pronounced SPEED with a long E. Now, some agencies do require other certifications, but none have called out this ISP certification. Um, They are, again, beginning to call out SPEED certification. And under the SPEED certification program, there are many certifications called um, Security Fundamental Professional Certification, the ISOC, as I mentioned earlier, the SAPPC. Now, since contracts, regulations, and jobs don't really require these, those protecting classified information to have a certification, why would anybody want to really pursue such an aggressive campaign to learn NISPOM topics? other than it's a fine piece of material to read. Uh, Here are five of the many reasons a professional should seek this certification. One, become more attractive as an employee. Now, if a certification requirement does not exist, the employee could work out an agreement with their supervisor. The supervisor would agree to challenge all employees to study for and take that certification. Once they pass, they could be eligible for promotion and raises if they remain in good standing. Two, become more attractive while bidding on contracts. A contractor with ISPs can leverage what they have, that they have employees 
board certified to protect classified information. My company actually did that with me. Prepare for better opportunities. A certification candidate can set one employee, a certification, I'm sorry, can, you know, set one employee above the rest. Sometimes being the best may not be enough. You have to prove it. Knowledge, skills, and abilities are believable and when proven with board certification. Though this certification may not be a requirement, it can give that extra push during evaluations, times for raises, and, of course, during that job interview. You can help others. According to the NCMS, ISPs can serve as mentors and certification exam proctors. The ISP also gives credibility to those who would like to teach and train within their profession. Now, being certified opens or being certified opens doors for you to be a mentor and help other people become certified. This mentorship is incredibly valuable. It also gives you a chance to practice your skills and your expertise. Now, consulting. Speaking of proof and credibility, many of you are consultants or have plans to become a consultant. If you write, teach, consult, demonstrate, or represent industrial security to clients and customers, a certification should be behind your name because it will cause your potential customers to pay attention. So if you're waiting for somebody to make you get certified, then keep waiting. It's not going to happen. But if you're self-motivated, go for this certification. Trends show that the certification is not going to be required anytime soon. However, if you want to be among the few industrial security professionals, get your certification. Demonstrate that you are among the professionals board certified to protect that classified information. As I mentioned earlier, we do have these books available at redbikepublishing.com. And if you want a fundamental walk through the NISPOM, we do have a course set up at bennettinstitute.com. It's called NISPOM Fundamentals. And we hope to see you there. All right, I would like to tell you now, give you a special message from Sims Software. S-I-M as in Mike S. Software. As clear defense contractors, you represent the backbone of innovation front line of our national security and protectors of all that we hold dear. Sims Software is proud to be your ally in these endeavors. As most trusted name in industrial security information management for over 38 years, Sims Software equips you with the tools to protect the lifeblood of your organization. Our flagship Sims Suite provides all the features and functionality you need to run an automated paperless industrial security program. Gain a 360-degree view of every physical, virtual, and human asset inside your security domain. From classified documents and materials to cleared personnel, facilities, visitor control, information systems, and more. SIMS supports requirements within all security communities. Visit SIMS at simssoftware.com or call 858-481-9292 or see our show notes for more information. Thank you so much for attending another episode of D-Secure with me. I'm your host, Jeff Bennett, and it's been truly a pleasure. We're going on three years now, and we appreciate every one of you out there. Please go back to our catalog and listen to our other shows if you're new here. And 
by all means, send comments. I put an email link in our show notes, editor at redbikepublishing.com. Visit our sponsors, too. They, they've put a lot of themselves into this product, and we appreciate every one of them. Remember, you can find out um, more about our podcast and our service and products if you're interested in our show notes. So until next time, we'll see you.